John chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing the water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to you for reading. I love you. And moving out here from, okay. Um, good morning, everybody. How you guys doing? Good, good, good. Uh, as Evan said, my name is David, and my wife and I, Candice, have been embedded church planners here. We're actually now in the process of unembedding, of spreading our wings and, and going out. Um, as Evan said, the family's at home right now because Idris is two weeks old. Uh, Idris Ephraim Alfred Wade. There's this little baby up here. He's so adorable. Just come hang out with him at our new church. No, uh, he's amazing. Thank you to everybody who have prayed for us and uh, just brought food for the meal train and just been checking in on us during this time. It means the world. Uh, Candace is healthy, baby's healthy, and so we're, we've really been enjoying our time together as a family. Now, for those who don't know, I've been on staff about a year and a half now, uh, having been shaped by and helping to shape Park Hill Church in some really tangible ways. I was able to start Park Hill Youth, which has been around for a year so far uh, this, this September. Tyler in the back, let's go. Faithful volunteer. Uh, and race and belonging cohort. Anybody from RBC in here? Let's go. Dude, first gathering was one person. Um, Race and Belonging Cohort, where we are able to unpack God's heart for the multi-ethnic community, the multi-ethnic family, new family of God that represents heaven. And that's been a joy and an honor for me to participate in. But Park Hills also definitely helped me grow and mature as well. Uh, being a part of the teaching team here has been one of the biggest gifts to my maturity and ministry and my personal walk with the Lord. Like, this is a truly blessed community when it comes to how the Bible is taught. But more importantly, I knew nobody in San Diego before we moved back here. Um, and now I have friends that feel like family that I wouldn't have met otherwise, for which I'm truly, truly grateful. And so Candace and I spent this whole time growing together as a family, knowing that we are going to be sent out to plant a new church. And now it's finally happening. All Saints San Diego launches first quarter 2024, somewhere in mid-city, ideally City Heights. And if you want to snag that QR code, uh, that's access to our newsletter, give you all the information on how you can follow and pray and um, information and updates, everything you'll need. I'll share a little bit more of the vision of this church plant in a few minutes. But first, I just want to acknowledge the bittersweet nature of such an event. Like, I'm excited to preach and to cast vision for this church that we, which is myself, along with the elders here at Park Hill, feel that God is calling some of you to join. But I do so in full awareness of the tension that comes with being sent out from a community you love. 
The metaphor my mentor uses is that of an arrow about to be released from a bow. The moment before release is where there's this, this tension that builds up, but it's also where there's the most intimacy. The arrow is right there in the archer's face, like almost on his cheek. And that intimacy is necessary to create the tension that generates the force for the arrow to fly. Now, once the arrow is released, you hope it hits its mark. You trust the aim of the archer, but there's uncertainty in the unknown. And yet when we see Jesus, when we sense his invitation for us to deny ourselves and to follow him, not only in the general sense of believing in him, that he is Lord, but in the specific callings that he has over our lives in different seasons, what else can we do when faced with that uncertainty but entrust ourselves to him? especially once we know that he is the only source of true life and light and love. And of course, every sensing from the spirit must be submitted to scripture and the communication and communion between elders and spiritual family, that discernment process. But once you have clarity, even if what God's calling you into is uncomfortable, it becomes our joy to trust him with all that we have, obeying him to the best of our ability as we seek to do what we claim that we always seek to do which is to follow Jesus. And so we're finishing this series called As Family We Go. For Park Hill, that looks like a call to plant churches that plant churches so more people can be welcomed into God's family as they hear the good news about Jesus. This is one of the things God is most passionate about on the planet, but in order for that to happen, the family has to multiply. Some children who've matured and been trained up in the way they should go need to leave the nest, so to speak. And in that process, God calls his family to go to places they didn't know they'd be called to go. Now, this is largely because God has lost sons and daughters that need to know that they belong and there's a God who loves them and they're in some really hard-to-reach places that we need to go to. But it's also because in the process, in becoming obedient to where God calls us, we are formed more into the image of Jesus in the process. This is gonna look different for all of us, but it applies to all of us. Whether you're in full-time ministry or the marketplace or homemaking or you're in school, all of us are called to live as sent ones, as arrows, no matter what it is that the Lord is inviting us into. Because as we do that, as we submit ourselves to his will and deny our own will, as we submit ourselves to his desires and deny our own desires, we are shaped more into the image of the obedient son, Jesus. Amen? We begin to look like Jesus looked when he said, not my way, but your will be done. And this is the story of God's people all throughout the Bible. From Abraham, whom God called to leave his father's house and his father's gods and to enter into a land that he hadn't seen before, all the way to the first disciples. Even Jesus' own relatives were called and sent in this way. Like nobody is exempt from being an arrow. Uh, John the Baptist, he's, he's a character in the scripture who's caught my attention recently, ever since we said yes to this church plant timeline last year. Now for those who don't know, this John is Jesus' older cousin and he was a prophet sent to prepare the way of the Lord. He grew up his whole life with prophetic declarations from literal angels that he was sent to prepare the path for Israel's Messiah, the one they'd been waiting for for thousands of years. And so from a very early age, John gave up everything to do what God had called him to do. 
He lived sacrificially poor, spending much of his time in the wilderness. He preached truth to power, the religious and political leaders of his day in a way that was very risky and costly for him. He took no wife and fathered no children to carry on his own name and legacy, all so he could see God's name be lifted high. He lived the set-apart life of a sent one, longing to see God's kingdom come to earth. But what happened when the thing that he was hoping for, the thing he had given his whole life to, looked different than he expected? Let's read the text. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Look, the Messiah that we're waiting on, the Savior, the Rescuer that we've been needing and longing for and praying for for thousands of years, this is him. And I told you that I wasn't him. I'm, I'm just a prophet. I'm just somebody that's trying to tell you about him to, to make his way ready. And then he says this very interesting line. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. See, many of us are familiar with this story. This is like Jesus' coming out party in John's gospel. His cousin announces him as the one they've all been waiting for to anyone who will listen. But reading this last year, literally a few days after we said yes to the 2024 church plant timeline, I noticed something I had never seen before. And it's right there in verse 31. I myself did not know him. Like, how could that be possible? How could John the Baptist not know that Jesus was the Messiah? He personally knew Jesus and Mary and Joseph and grew up with them. They're his family, right? He, he would have grown up saturated in the stories of Jesus, the Immaculate Conception, the three magi that come to visit from far away, shepherds and angels, you name it. I mean, he literally leapt in his mother's womb the first time he came close to Jesus. How could he say that he didn't know that this was the Messiah, the one he'd been sent to prepare a way for? Did he did he have a different image of what Messiah would look like? Maybe a political king and, and ruler? Or did he just not believe that it could be his little baby cousin Jesus because he saw him, you know, trip and fall on the playground one day? I don't, did they have playgrounds? Maybe. You know, like, why, why would he not know? We don't know how he didn't know. We don't know. But what we do know is what he did when he realized. We do know what he did when, he, when God revealed to him exactly what it is that he was giving his life to. Exactly what it is that he was inviting him into, he, he obeyed. John said yes. Let's look at verse 32. Then John gave his testimony, his official account to all who would listen. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's going to change everything. That makes God available to everyone. And John says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So in other words, John says, I didn't know that this is what it was going to look like. I didn't know that this is what God was actually calling me to. But God spoke, and the Spirit confirmed, and so here's my answer. Yes. 
Now, there's so much more I could get into about John's story. I've just been eating from this scripture for the last year. But what I want to talk to to us about today um, is our ability to say yes again, to go as God's family, even and perhaps especially when following Jesus looks different than what we thought it would look like. When the invitation is into the unknown, somewhere beyond our comfort zone, because the one who calls us is infinitely worthy of every yes we could ever give, amen? And so as my family enters this new season within our church family, I wanna share my own story, my own series of yeses before I'd ever consider inviting you into this crazy journey alongside us. Is it cool if I share my testimony a little bit? All right. Oh, you guys, thank you, okay. Uh, I want to start with my testimony because I want you guys to really get to know me. I feel like when you hear somebody's story, you get to know them in a new way. And knowing a person's story can help you understand not only where they've been, but where they're going. And if you might want to get there together. And so I promise that this is the most I will ever talk about myself from a microphone. Um, And I thought that this would be the longest sermon I preached, but I did okay last time. So we'll see what happens. There's no third service anymore, so we'll just stay here until noon, okay? Okay. now, I was, I was born and raised in Washington, Pennsylvania. Shout out. She knows where it's at. Uh, a small city outside of Pittsburgh on the East Coast. Uh, a Rust Belt town. A lot of drugs, a lot of violence, a lot of poverty. And my parents were actually drug addicts for much of my childhood. Uh, so when I was a kid, we were in and out of shelters a lot, moved out, got evicted a lot, and there was a ton of instability. My parents got married when I was 10 and divorced when I was 11. And after they got divorced, my dad moved to Ohio, and uh, my mom, my sisters, and I moved into the projects. And we spent much of my formative years growing up on less than $15,000 a year. And I had an interesting relationship with church as a kid. Uh, My parents would drop us off at Friendship Baptist Church when I was little, uh, which was where my uncle was a deacon, this small black Baptist church behind the Burger King in this back alley across from the locksmith. Um, It was a great, great spot, and I loved it. I loved church. I got saved and baptized at a very young age, and my faith was real. Even into my preteen years when there was this big church that used to send a van and pick up all the hood kids to bring them to their youth group once a week, uh, I would go and I'd be worshiping in the front row with everybody, hands raised, while all my friends were getting into fights and talking to girls in the back. Like, I was like, give me Jesus, man, you know? I was, I was a good little kid. But once I became a teenager, all that childhood pain and trauma caught up with me. It turned into anger, even rage. By the time I was 14, I wasn't going to church at all. At 15, I formed a gang and started selling drugs. And by 16, I actually dropped out of high school and had my own apartment where I was doing all kinds of wild and ungodly things. Now, I was a smart kid, but according to the path I was on, I wasn't destined to be a pastor, but probably a prisoner, or worse, like another young black boy in a box buried six feet beneath the ground. And I know we're not used to it this morning, but can you guys just do me a favor? and say, but God. That was good. Let's try one more time. But God. Wow. But God had a different plan. Amen. See, my Aunt Tammy, she's a Christian who some of you guys have met. She called me one night and convinced me to move in with her in Ohio so that I could finish high school and have a chance at going to college. And so a few weeks before I turned 17, I left all that crazy stuff behind, moved to the cornfields of Pickerington outside of Columbus where she put me in a private Christian school run by the megachurch she worked at so she could keep an eye on me. And while I was there, I was still partying and being wild, but I I did quit pursuing the street life. 
I focused on school and I actually got a scholarship to NYU for screenwriting. Now, writing was my passion. And as a first-generation college student, I was going to conquer New York City through selling a big script or becoming the greatest rapper of all time. I was going to pull my family up out of poverty. And in fact, my music career did start to take off. I was throwing big shows and getting recognized on the subway by kids from all these colleges. And I was forming a little independent label with other artists who've gone on to do some pretty big things in the industry. I was even recording my first album in a multi-million dollar studio where my friend worked and interned at. And we had some big artists that had agreed to do some songs with us. But then I met Jesus. The Full Encounter is a saga in and of itself, but the short version is this. One night I took shrooms for the first time and it did not go well. I heard demonic voices telling me to drown myself in the Hudson River all night long and all I could say was the name of Jesus. And every time I said the name of Jesus, the voices would stop. Like God literally saved my life. It's that simple, it's the good news. Like I know that I know that I know that Jesus fought for me that night. And that's the reason that I'm here this morning. And so the next day I started reading the Bible and that led to me rededicating my life to Christ at the end of summer. And, and it was beautiful and powerful and super hard. Like it cost me everything. See, once I stopped partying and throwing shows and living crazy, I started talking about Jesus instead. All my, my friends, they didn't want nothing to do with me. They disowned me. They thought I'd lost my mind. And then once I stopped making the same kind of music that I was, my music career fell apart. My identity was all screwed up. There were so many complications and things I was trying to figure out, but, but I knew that I'd found the only thing that matters and that was enough. See, the Bible says whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And, and I'd found it. The pearl of great price that Jesus talks about. Amen? The field that you go and sell everything so that you can just come back and be in it. I, I had found him, and, and it was beautiful because I had been angry and broken and anxious and so, so sad for so much of my life, searching for something in every woman and drug and accomplishment I could find, and yet none of it fed me. Like, none of it filled me or satisfied. I always came up empty at the end. But now, for the first time in my life, I was alive. I was experiencing God's love daily through his scriptures and the Holy Spirit and this church community that he had graciously surrounded me with. And even though I was still hurting and confused and I felt isolated at times, God was with me. His presence was real. So in the midst of some real crushing and confrontation with the cost of discipleship, that kid from the Jollock Manor Projects became this young man. Like I was super imperfect, still trying to figure out how to get out of some sin and what it meant to follow God, but, but I just wanted Jesus, no matter what, at any cost, because he saved me. Like Evan said last week, Nothing to lose, nothing to prove. My life is Christ. Nothing else matters. So my story used to end there, right? Like my first experience in ministry was going and sharing that testimony with people. But a lot of life has happened since then. That was 2010. So fast forward, I've done campus ministry, inner city missions, youth work, evangelism to artists, evangelism to Muslims, house church, and some version of pastoral ministry ever since. But it was always in a volunteer capacity. Like it was a sacrifice of praise to the Lord 
It was my privilege and honor. It was the only right response to give to the one who had saved me. I wanted other people to taste and see that the Lord was good. Put me in, coach. I'll do anything. I'll serve anywhere, whatever it is. Just just let me tell people. Like, I thought I might go into full-time ministry. I knew I was called to tell my story and to tell God's story to others. But then... God opened the door for me to get my MFA in creative writing at the number one program in the country. And my pastor actually blessed me and sent me and Candace out to pursue it. And this was huge for me because we came from a a really missional church planting movement where it was like all about churches that plant churches. And and I, I asked him as I wrestled through my calling and vocation, I said, hey, is there a place for me in this family even if I never plant a church? And he said, of course. And that like blew my mind. It changed everything because he he solidified for me that my worth and identity wasn't what I could do for God. Amen. He was a good leader who, who empowered me to pursue what I felt like the Lord was calling me into. And so I went back into the artist world with the full blessing of our spiritual elders. Now, I need you guys to know that since that big rededication in 2010, uh, I had been a factory worker for Jesus, a janitor for Jesus, a barista for Jesus, a third shift self-stalker for Jesus. Uh, Some of you guys might remember that I worked at the mall handing out the orange chicken samples at the Chinese restaurant for Jesus. Like, that was me. Okay. Uh, all, All these random jobs to make ends meet while I tried to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus while I tried to say yes as best I could to what I felt like he was asking me at the time. And so when this MFA came along, I was like, I'm in, I'm in heaven, man. I'm in fairy tale land. Like, it felt like God was handing me back all the dreams of my heart that I had laid down when he saved me. Like I was getting a second opportunity to be an artist, only this time much more mature, able to be faithful in Jesus in some of the darkest places, like to live as a missionary in that world. And it was happening. My art was taken off. I was working hard, teaching, winning awards, and by all accounts, I had a promising future ahead as an emerging artist. All the while sharing Jesus with classmates and fellow writers who were searching for something deeper at the bottom of their own art and pain. It was like I was ministering to my past self and I used to weep and thank God for the privilege. Like I was boldly proclaiming the gospel and pursuing orthodoxy and these really elite academic spaces and people were getting saved and I was able to be a part of it. I was so happy. I was so humbled. All was well. And then the pastor of the church plant that we were at in Michigan got cancer and he started asking me to preach. Easy yes. But then our church merged with another church, and they asked me to be the campus pastor in a full-time role. And that was not an easy yes. Like, I really just didn't want to. I'd already given everything to Jesus. I'd already upended and reoriented my life so many times for him. Like, I thought I had paid my dues, you know? What more could he want from me? But the truth is, you only know how genuine your faith is when it's tested. And one of the biggest tests for us is, will you say yes again? And this, can, this is a hard teaching. Some of you have given up infinitely more than I ever have or ever will for Jesus. Some of you know loss at profound and isolating scales and still choose to say yes to him, to trust him. I mean, I think of John the Baptist 
Jesus' own cousin, who essentially dedicated his life to the Lord twice, and he finished his race being murdered in prison for it. Like, it's hard. Some things just don't make sense. But I want you to know that God sees you and loves you and is with you in the midst of it all. He is a proud father, and we trust his promise that one day every mystery will be enfolded in his embrace. Every tear will be washed away. All pain and sorrow will be no more when we will be met with, well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home. And yet the truth remains. It's good that we made a decision of faith to follow Jesus at some point in our lives. But you're only a faithful follower of Jesus if you keep saying yes, no matter what. That's the call. Why? Because he's alive and he is Lord. And when he asks you to do something, like the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, you do it. Because he's God. Because he's worth it. Because he loves you. He sent his son to die for you, to show you this love. And, and, and now you know that there's no place you'd rather be. There's no price that you could pay. There's no stuff you could have that is worth more than him, that is better than being with him. All the stuff in the world, I don't want it if I don't have him. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his what? His soul. Whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the son does not have life. And the son is not stagnant. See, I love the message Evan preached last week about leaning back on Jesus' chest. That is a beautiful image of the intimacy that comes when we abide in Christ, when we discover the one thing the psalmist wrote about, the only thing that matters. Psalm 27, some of you guys might know this. One thing I've asked of the Lord and that one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This is literally the purpose of your life and the eternal destiny of all who believe in Jesus. Intimacy with Jesus must lead to obedience to Jesus. And so as we lean back, hearing his heartbeat, we then move to the rhythms of his life. Like we get close enough to hear, and we remain close by moving with him, by saying yes. And so Candace and I prayed and sought counsel and searched the scriptures and fasted, and we both felt the Lord's invitation and it cost both of us. Candace had already wanted to move back to San Diego to be closer to family after her brother was tragically killed by a drunk driver, but she pushed back the timeline to say yes. And for me, even though my dreams were coming true, dreams I thought the Lord had handed me back, things that I had given up on but had been rekindled, I felt like Jesus was asking me to serve him through serving his bride. And so we said yes. And there's no manipulation. No, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You do this for me, David, and then I'll give you this later. Nothing like that. Just a clear invitation to surrender. And so my whole family said yes. We served at that church and grew family there. That's where we know Nate and Carly from. And I went to seminary and the Lord used it to grow us and to bless his church. And in that season, Jesus taught us so much more about what it means to be dependent upon him, to orient our whole identities around him, to lean back and then obey what we hear in his heart. 
And once that season ended, we moved to San Diego and we met the Wickhams. Uh, Evan's back there. I actually took him to communal, or he took me, I guess, church credit card, maybe. And uh, he, I asked you if I could be an associate pastor. And he said, we don't really do that, but we do embedded church planners and I can send you out. And I said, no, I wasn't really sure what that looked like. And we prayed and we grew in relationship and and we talked and then the Lord said yes. (laughs) And so we said yes again. Gosh darn it. (laughs) You know, no, excitedly, happily, joyfully, we said yes. That's how all this came about. That's the brief history or my brief part of the story. That's how we got to this point today. And so to be very clear, I'm not trying to glamorize myself or to make you like me or anything like that. Like I'm broken and weak and imperfect and I'm trying to figure it all out like everyone else in this room and everyone else in full-time ministry. In fact, my basic message of the gospel to any would-be disciple of Jesus, I don't think it's that attractive on one hand. Like all I really have to offer is that famous but perhaps forgotten Bonhoeffer quote. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Like if you're following Jesus, that's what you signed up for in this room. It's not for good coffee and good worship. You know, I mean, that's nice. I like good coffee and good worship. We're blessed. But when Christ calls a man, he he bids him to come and die. I mean, think about what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 16 that we read earlier. If anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. These are men and women who left homes, businesses, families, friends, and every other allegiance to follow this Jewish rabbi they thought was the Messiah, but they weren't quite sure yet. And he told him up front, hey, I'm going to die on a cross for this thing. And you probably will too. Peter, you for sure will. (laughs) But I will be with you no matter what. So trust me. It's worth it. I'm worth it. Now, statistically, most of us in this room are not going to die for our faith, but all of us are called to surrender everything, no exemptions. And that means that we're going to be invited into some really hard yeses sometimes. And I still have so much to surrender, like half of which I'm probably not even aware of. Candace might be more aware of it than me, but I believe with all my heart that whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I want people to know that they can have life. So I have nothing to lose, nothing to prove. My life is Christ. Nothing else matters. That's all I have to offer. And the only reason I tell my story like this now was to let you know that it wasn't my dream to become a pastor or to preach on stages or to start some big church, and it still isn't. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm joyfully excited about all the Lord has invited us into through all saints and vocational ministry. We get to share life with some of our best friends and raise kids together while we watch God save the lost and destroy darkness in a city we love, the best city in the world. Like, there's a beach everywhere you go. Like, look, just look outside. It's amazing. Uh, It's beautiful. And we're already seeing God do some incredible, miraculous things in the community. And then this church, Park Hill, is going to help us do it through giving actual dollars and sending actual humans to come plant with us? What a gift. I feel blessed. 
But the real reason I have joy is because what became the deepest dream of my heart the day that Jesus saved my life was to see the king of the universe get everything he is owed, everything his blood paid for, everything he is worth through my life. And all I want for everybody in this room is to feel the exact same way about him. I want that same passion and hunger and sense of duty to Jesus to infect everybody in this room, whether you come with us or remain at Park Hill or move to Portland, whatever God's calling you to do, I just want you to surrender everything to Jesus. I want to be part of a church family that longs for him as we experience his longing for us because, beloved, nobody modeled obedience at great cost like Jesus. Nobody laid it all down like the man who literally surrendered his life to pay for our sin. Like that's the God we serve. One who never invites us into anything he isn't willing to do himself. And so I want to be a part of a church family that surrenders all because Jesus surrendered all and I want to be like Jesus. Now thankfully this has been the majority of my experience with the church for the last 13 years. I truly feel that I've found that people at Park Hill too. Like this is a hungry church, a faithful church, a church that seeks his face. Well done. But in the midst of that, remember the arrow. Part of the hunger and obedience and seeking, part of the intimacy with Jesus can sometimes result in being sent out to multiply and make disciples of all nations to invite those who haven't tasted and seen to the table to, or better yet, to bring the table to them. So we're planning a church, and I want to formally invite you to prayerfully consider joining us in this mission. And this church that we're planning, like Evan said, it shares DNA with Park Hill and Neighbors Church and the Enos' church. Um, We're going to be sisters, like we're family for the long run. But we also know that we have some unique tools and resources that will allow us to bring the kingdom to some different kinds of people throughout our city and beyond. So here's the pitch. All Saints San Diego will be planted in mid-city, ideally city heights, with the vision of drawing together folks of different ethnic, cultural, and socioeconomic backgrounds into the one new family of God as a witness to our city of God's new city yet to come. Our mission is to preach the gospel and make disciples who follow Jesus fully and forever. For us, that gets worked out through our three core convictions. God with us, love one another, and for the sake of the world. This is our heartbeat, which is really just our best attempt to distill Jesus' heartbeat. And there's a lot of overlap with what's been preached the past three weeks, although the language may be different. But our goal is that everything we do flows from these three convictions, which we'll be sharing more about at our upcoming foundations gatherings. There should be a slide for this. Uh, The first one is October 6th at Boulevard Hall. These foundations are going to be times of worship and prayer designed specifically for people who are praying about joining this new church. Um, where we're just going to seek God together, build a foundation for his church, his kingdom to grow and blossom and bloom and be built up in mid-city San Diego. Uh, This venue that we got is like right on El Cajon Boulevard. I'm super excited about it. The QR code is the same one from earlier. It'll take you to the newsletter, but also just let you know you can tick a box if you want to come to the night and just let us know how to plan and prepare. 
We're going to be doing those throughout the next several months until we launch. Uh, ideally, in February, we'll start meeting Sunday mornings. All that information will be in the newsletter. But I just want to take a moment and, and, and talk about these convictions. I could talk about all of them for hours, and I will, particularly at these foundations nights. Like God with us is a way to talk about our intimacy with God made available through his relentless pursuit of us and constant faithfulness. Nowhere more obvious than in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And love one another is a way to describe the messy, beautiful, formational family we are called to as church. The kind of family that loves one another so radically that unbelievers come to believe Jesus really is God. Like people who don't know that Jesus is God will know that Jesus is God by the way that you and me love one another. That's like straight from Messiah's mouth. It's crazy. And those are both great reasons to go to church. God saved me and he gave me family. But why should we plant a church? Well, for the sake of the world. And that's just another way to say that we're called to those who don't know Jesus. Like there are millions of people in this city right now who do not have the sun and therefore do not have eternal life. And so for us who have life, it is actually our joy and responsibility to draw them into God's family, the family that is centered on and marked by God's presence. We feel especially called at All Saints to serve in and around City Heights, which is one of the most diverse neighborhoods per capita in the United States and is home to some of our city's most underserved communities. It's also super central to Barrio Logan, San Diego State, and neighborhoods further southeast like Lemon Grove and La Mesa and Encanto, communities we really want to heavily invest in. And this is not on accident. I really believe that genuine multicultural unity is the miracle the 21st century American church is dying to witness. Like, we feel called to become a family that reflects the unique diversity of our city, intentionally moving into and ministering in some of the rougher areas in mid-city. And to be clear, all are welcome to come, regardless of where you live, how much money you make, whatever. We simply state up front that we are intentionally going after three groups with a passion. The unreached, the underserved, and the artists. What do I mean by unreached? I mean people who have never grown up in church, people who have not heard the gospel of Jesus. Is anybody familiar with the 1040 window? You ever heard that term before? Uh, it is a strip of our planet between like latitude, longitude, longitude 1040 or something um, that encompasses like a lot of Northeast Africa and a lot of Southeast Asia, the Middle East, where the majority of the people in that strip don't follow Jesus, never heard the gospel, or practice another major world religion. And people from so many of those nations live right in this tiny little neighborhood of City Heights. Like it's chock full of people from that region on earth. And we want to live as missionaries among them by creating simple, reproducible gospel communities that are easily accessible to all. Next group is the underserved, which basically just means kids who grew up the way that I grew up. Um, there's this quote by Howard Thurman, who was a theologian and a thinker. Uh, he was really important to Dr. Martin Luther King's thought. In fact, his book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, was the legend goes that, that Dr. King kept it in his breast pocket while he preached. He, he has this quote where he talks about the disinherited or, or the dispossessed, the broken, the poor among us, whom he calls the masses of men with their, their backs against the wall. And we want to reach those families. 
It's gonna look like a lot of different ways, but we're excited to pour our all out into those communities. And then lastly, the artists. Uh, in a way, it does feel like I have the privilege to minister to myself now when I get to commune with young artists who are super dope and amazing and are trying to figure out how to like follow Jesus and be faithful in their craft. And, and I'm really passionate about teaching people um, and, and learning myself, right, what it means to be excellent while also being faithful. You know, the first thing that we learn about God in the Bible is that he's a creator. And the second thing we learn is that when he sees darkness, he makes light. And, and creators, creatives have some interesting capacity in order to see darkness and, and make something beautiful, right, and bright, to see brokenness and to bring life out of that. And so I'm excited for our church to reflect that part of God's heart as well. And I know this all sounds super idealistic. And I know that there's so much outside of my control, right? Like a church is not ideas, it's people. And people are not possessions to like make do what you want to do. Like it's going to be a family that grows together the way the spirit leads us. Like ultimately all we can do is shoot our shot and trust God with the rest, but we have to take aim, right? We have to be aiming in a direction. And so when it comes to the lost and the nations and the poor and the broken and the misfits and the outcasts, I want them all because Jesus wants them all. And all of us should want them all because Jesus wants them all. See, the kingdom of heaven, God's new family, is beautifully diverse. It is a song sung in every tongue. It is bodies brown and brilliant, white and black, dark and lovely. It is built upon the foundation of orthodoxy laid by the 12 apostles, the chief cornerstone of which is Jesus Christ. And its gates are flung wide to the distinctive glories and cultural expressions of all the nations of earth. It is multi-ethnic and multi-class, male and female, young and old. It is inclusive of sexual minorities and those with disabilities. It even includes those with opposing political beliefs. This new family is what the broken systems of the world long for, and it has always been God's plan. And so at All Saints, just like Park Hill, we will fight for our new family to reflect these truths as we pursue unity in the spirit, centering Christ alone, around whom every nation, tribe, and tongue will one day come to confess, Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. And so whether you remain at Park Hill or join us at All Saints, we are all called to be arrows or sent ones right where we are. No matter what you do for work, we all have the opportunity to live missionally, to live as, as arrows through whom Jesus' kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And the wildest part is that after all those pretty words and big ideas and great vision, living this thing out is actually super simple. Uh, it's incredibly costly, but super simple. Practice the way of Jesus and share his gospel in your context. Tell people what he did for you and live a life in response to his love. That's what we're committing to do at All Saints. And that's what God requires of all who follow. And so here's the invitation. And Evan, if you guys want to come back up, the response to a message like this is simple. Give your yes to Jesus. And I'm going to list three ways that you can do that this morning. And the first way is join All Saints 
San Diego, join our church. Now, don't do it because you're bored or dissatisfied or you want to try something cool and different because it's going to be hard and messy and we are imperfect people who are for sure going to let you down. But if God is calling you to this thing, trust him. Come grow together with us, stepping out into the unknown in faith. You can shoot me an email or a text, uh, get the QR code, whatever, but let's connect and talk. Talk to the Wickhams, talk to me. And again, we have the foundations coming up over the next several months. The first one is October 6th. And if you're praying about this, if you're feeling the stirring in your heart, that's the space for you to come. And the second way to give your yes to Jesus, remain faithful at Park Hill. All of us are called to say yes today, no matter if you're joining this church or not. And we love this church. This is the church we've been for the last two years that has grown and shaped and developed us just like it has you. And so if you feel called to remain here, double down at Park Hill. But live as an arrow right where you are. Like, what would happen if you had the mind shift of, I'm actually sent to Park Hill. I'm sent to be God's hands and feet in and through this community. What more can you surrender to God? How can you serve Jesus through serving this church? Does that look like leading a community? Does that look like serving with kids, set up, tear down? I don't know. But all of us are called to be sent. And then lastly, give your life to Jesus. Uh, some of you guys in this room, you might be hearing the gospel for the first time. This might be your first time hearing the message that God loves you so much he sent his son to die for you, to be with you, to make a way for you to have life that never ends, to have joy that doesn't make sense in the midst of your circumstance, to have a real relationship with the living God who created you and made you for love. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you just to say yes to Jesus. Give your life to him. Tell him that I don't know what it looks like, but whatever I have is yours. All I am belongs to you now. Thank you for saving me. And if you want to talk to somebody about that, come talk to me or one of the leaders here afterwards. We'd love to pray with you. Amen. All right, let us, let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel that you sent your only begotten son to dwell among us, to live with us, to show us what life is like, this impossible otherworldly existence, and then to make it possible through your own blood through dying the death that we deserved and giving us the life that we could never live. I pray that you would stir in each heart and reveal yourself in the ways that each of us individually as families or households are called to say yes to you this morning, to surrender all that we have and all that we are because you're worth it. We love you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.